Lamentations 3, 1 through 24. The first 20 or so verses are as bad as things can get. That's why it's called Lamentations. But then this song has got us all ready for with God, he's a faithful God. So read with me here. Lamentations 3, 1 through 24. I am the man who has seen affliction because of the rod of his wrath. He has driven me and made me walk in darkness and not in light. Surely against me he has turned his hand repeatedly all the day. He has caused my flesh and my skin to waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and encompassed me with bitterness and hardship. In dark places, he has made me dwell, like those who have been long been dead. He has walled me in so that I cannot go out. He has made my chain heavy. Even when I cry out and call for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with hewn stone. He has made my paths crooked. He is to me like a bear lying in wait, like a lion in secret places. He has turned aside my ways and torn me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He has bent his bow and set me as a target for the arrow. He made the arrows of his quiver to enter into my inward parts. I, Jeremiah, have become a laughingstock to all my people. Their mocking song all the day. He has filled me with bitterness. He has made me drunk with wormwood. He has broken my teeth with gravel. He has made me cower in the dust. My soul has been rejected from peace. I have forgotten happiness. So I say, my strength has perished, and so has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wandering the wormwood and bitterness. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. This I recall to my mind. Therefore, I have hope. The Lord's loving kindness indeed never ceases. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. Heavenly Father, when we're cast down in despairing circumstances, Lord, we just trust that you are our deliverer, you're our hope, and you are faithful. Bless now our pastor as he comes and preaches the word. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you, Brother Vern. Good morning, IBC family. Well, to keep in, uh, in the spirit of this theme, perhaps you've caught on already, but the theme this morning is God's faithfulness. We've been going through the attributes of God, various attributes, some that seem to be even contradictory in nature, but they're not. But this morning we get to settle in And I pray that's exactly what you get to do, is actually settle in and be comforted by the fact that God is faithful. You know, we live in a culture where people may boast of huge promises, make huge promises, right? Um, For example, we could, I think politicians, though I know that's not a very unifying subject, uh, and probably increasingly more so this next year, but... Many times, politicians on their platform will make big promises. This is what I will do if you elect me, right? And so they have big claims that they will, they promise to us, and then, of course, the hope is that they will get elected. Or companies may boast big claims about products they want to sell you. For example, they may say that or claim that they are different than the competition, or their stuff is built to last, or their appliance is uh, energy-saving, so you'll have a cheaper utility bill, and you're saving the planet at the same time. 
Now, obviously, most of us in here probably have enough aptitude, and we can read between the lines and understand that these catchphrases and these promises are usually embellished at least to some degree. Uh, All you have to do is go to the local Port Angeles dump, and you'll see how green your appliance is, right? Um, The point I'm getting at is that no matter how good a product may be or how much or how trustworthy a person may be, eventually everything and everyone fails in some way, in some form. There's nothing in this life that is 100% certain. Now, of course, when we consider the life expectancy of our stuff or of someone's promises, that may not bother us too much because we are almost used to the fact that eventually everything fails. Everything has a life expectancy to it, right? And we know that not everyone can fulfill the promises that they may have boasted of prior to the conversation. But what about other areas of life? What about areas such as relationships? What about our marriage? What about our employment? You see, when we consider these other areas of our life, then all of a sudden dependability and reliability and longevity and faithfulness, all of a sudden those things really matter. And so while we may have little faith in, you know, our washing machine, we may have a rightful expectation that our spouse and other relationships in our lives will remain faithful, regardless of the circumstances. But here's the reality. There is only one that is actually 100% reliable. There is only one who is dependable like this. There is only one who is 100% faithful at all times. And that one is God himself. Brother Vern just read a passage of scripture to us that no doubt is familiar to many of us perhaps, though most of us don't really like to read the entire book of Lamentations because it's, it can be very discouraging. It is a, a, a response of lament. It is discouraging, and it's intended to be so. It's the prophet Jeremiah decrying, in a sense, the woes and the struggle within his ministry. But sandwiched right in the middle of that, in these woes and all this struggle that he's experiencing, is this, but this I call to mind. But this is what I remember. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The fact is, You and I, we may use language like hyperbolic language, right? You and I may use things like, oh, you never do this, or you always do this, especially when we're in an argument with our spouse or someone close to us, right? It's tempting, and my kids even do the same thing. You never do this, or you always do this, and we always have to say, time out, that's actually not true. You can't use extreme language like never or always, because it's simply not true. Horizontally and in our lives, it's not fair to use extreme language or hyperbolic language, but when, it, when we make reference to God and his relationship to us, it is, only, it is the only language that is appropriate because only God himself can say that he ne- his steadfast love never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. Do you realize, brothers and sisters, that this morning, by the way, you can take that quote off right now, Megan. Do you realize that this morning already you have been on the receiving end of God's love and mercy 
to you. I don't know if you woke up this morning with that reality or not, but this is what the scripture tells us, that his mercies and his steadfast love, that's an unending love, are new every single morning. And so when you woke up this morning or when you came back from Sweden, right, Chris? When you woke up this morning, you were on the receiving end of God's love and affection and mercy toward you. That's a reality. That is a perspective that causes a deep calm in my soul. I don't know about for you, but knowing that God is on the proactive agenda, has a proactive uh, direction to make sure that we are on the receiving end of love and mercy and grace, it brings a kind of a balm to my soul. You know, even when we are faithless, Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 2, even when we are faithless, God is faithful because he cannot deny himself. God is always faithful. And so even though everything else in our life, right, maybe everything else in our life or in your life right now seems to be failing you, maybe there are people in your life that just seem to be like, man, I am no longer trusting people. I can no longer trust circumstances. I can no longer feel like I can trust anything else. Brothers and sisters, know this. God promises this, that God will never leave you. He will never forsake you. His steadfast love for you never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. God is faithful always. Now, of course, we need to, at this point, probably define for ourselves so we're on the same page. What does it mean that God is faithful? You and I might have differing definitions or understandings of what that term or concept means. So let me give you an idea of where I'm coming from when I refer to God as faithful or the faithfulness of God. The the, a dictionary definition that is helpful for us about faithfulness is this, that faithfulness is a, a steadfast affection or allegiance. To be faithful means to be loyal. And different synonyms or words that are used to kind of encompass this whole concept of faithfulness are words such as dependability, trustworthiness, uh, a constant or reliable person, true to one's word or true to one's character, someone who always comes through for you every time. So when we speak of the faithfulness of God... Again, the quote that you probably already read a little bit earlier by Wayne Grudem, I think that summarizes well what we're trying to capture for us this morning. God's faithfulness means that God will always do what he has said and fulfill what he has promised. In fact, the essence of true faith is taking God at his word and relying on him to do as he has promised. Martin Lloyd-Jones said something very helpful or similar to Grudem's quote here. He says, faith is holding on to the faithfulness of God, and as long as you do that, you cannot go wrong. You know, I think as a, as a way of personal application for all of us, I think this really influences how you and I grapple with and read and receive the Scripture. You see, some of us need to start reading our Bibles with this perspective in mind. The perspective is this. If God said it, then he meant it. If God said it, then he meant it, and therefore I will choose to believe it. You see, oftentimes you and I can pick up our Bibles and read a passage and maybe, and maybe think to ourselves, oh, I know God said this, I know, I, could, I know God could do this, or I know he has the ability to do that, I believe that God will probably do this or that for somebody, but probably not me, right? 
I mean, how important am I, really? No, you see, we need to read our Bibles with an attitude and with a belief that says, if God said it, then I receive it because God is faithful. He is constant. He is reliable. He is dependable. And he cannot lie. Now, of course, there's always a need for a word of caution or setting the boundaries on both ends, right? We need to make sure that when we read the Scriptures and are interpreting the Scripture that we're doing so in its appropriate context. You see, it's easy and I think unfortunately all too common to rip Scripture out of its context and expect God to do something for you that He actually never promised to do in the first place. You see, all of us are born with a certain set of biases, right? And our culture all feeds into it. Whether you realize it or not, you have a certain bias or bent to think and to receive and to interpret everything you read or come in contact with. We all have that. There's nothing we can do about that except for try to be aware of it as much as possible. And that's why even in the context of community that we get to encourage one another and help one another better understand God's revelation to us. We need to approach the scripture much like the Bereans in Acts chapter 17, right? How did the Bereans receive Paul's message? They didn't just take it hook, line, and sinker, but they actually dove into the scripture and says, let's see if what Paul is claiming to be true is actually true. And they dive into the scripture only to verify, oh yeah, what Paul is claiming to be true is all on the pages of scripture. But that said, may we also not swing to the other extreme and approach God's revelation to us called the Bible with a spirit or a sense of skepticism and unbelief. Instead, may we approach the scriptures with this attitude or perspective in mind. If God said it, then he meant it. And therefore, I choose to believe it and receive it. I wonder, as you read the scriptures, if you were to approach it in that way, that God was speak, that God is literally speaking to you in that moment when you, when you open the pages of scripture or you're listening to it on your, whatever your favorite app is, that God, is, by his spirit, is speaking to you And it's intended for you to receive it for your life in that moment for a purpose. The question is, why can we trust God in this way? How is God able to be faithful 100% of the time? Especially when nothing in life or no one else in life is faithful like this. How how do we know that God is faithful like this? Now, there's a number of reasons that could be contributed at this point, but I'm going to give you just a handful for us this morning. One of the ways and reasons why God is faithful 100% of the time is, first of all, because he is all-knowing. And uh, next month, we'll be getting to uh, a couple different attributes called omniscience and omnipotence and omnipresence. And uh, those are theological terms, omni being all or full, and in this case, omniscient means to be all-knowing, to know everything. In other words, he's never caught off guard because he knows everything. Some of us in this room think we know everything, right? Some of us like to have the reputation as like, I got an answer for everything. Well, here's a great sobering statement. You don't. Only God knows everything. Everything, And that's, that's ultimately to reassure us as well. I don't see everything that's going on, but God does. What does Paul say that we've, we've read this passage of Scripture many times in Romans 11? Oh, the depth and the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Paul asked in a rhetorical way. The answer is nobody, because no one can be God's counselor. He's the one that knows everything. 
You see, another reason why we can trust God's faithfulness in our life is not only because he knows everything, but he's also all-powerful. The theological term for that is omnipotence, all potential, all ability. He never encounters anything or anyone who can disrupt his purposes. We also see in Scripture, throughout the pages of Scripture, that God is holy. To be holy is to be pure, undefiled. It is to be full of integrity and, and, and fully honest. It's an inability to lie and therefore is always consistent with his character and with his word. We also learn together that God is eternal, that he's not affected by both space or time. Psalm 90 says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Just as maybe you have asked this question and my kids are asking, everything seems to have a start. We all had a start. And and it confounds the mind. Wait, well, then how did God come about? He always was. Don't try to understand it. Just receive it and accept it. (laughs) There are things that Scripture reveals that we just cannot grasp with our finite, limited minds. We just go, oh God, you are big and I am not. We also learn that God is everywhere at the same time. That's a, the fancy term for that is omnipresence. In other words, nothing can happen outside of his presence. Psalm 139, David says this, or asks this, where shall I go from your spirit or where should I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the mornings and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. The point is this, no matter where you go in life, no matter where you are at, God is there. Brothers and sisters, that reality, that understanding, that awareness is extremely helpful and timely because No doubt all of us at some point in time in our life have wondered, man, I feel absolutely and utterly alone. Again, alone because many of us cannot be all things to all people. And many times we fail one another. But may I just say to you, based on the revelation and the promise of God's word, he says he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He is always with us. So even when you feel alone, let take those thoughts captive, all those thoughts captive, and remind yourself, oh, God has never left me. I may feel alone, but my Father in heaven is with me right now, in the midst of this excruciating struggle. We also know that God is faithful because God is immutable. You love that word, right? Thank you, brother, for taking on that uh, fun topic. Uh, Brother Steve actually talked about immutability, right? And we use those words all the time, so we know exactly what we're talking about. Not really. But in the theological word, you know, we have this, it's a word that kind of captures what what God's revelation to us uh, gives us, that God never changes, that he is never different than he is, is now. In other words, God doesn't change, meaning he doesn't have a bad day. He doesn't go through mood swings. He doesn't go through mood swings. Isn't that great? Have anybody gone through a mood swing before? This last week, I had a mood swing. It wasn't pretty. But God never has those. He's not, man, today I'm just feeling off. Today, you know, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm just lacking in patience toward my creation. But tomorrow, maybe I'll be better. No, God is perfectly perfect, eternally perfect, infinitely perfect. He doesn't sway one way to the next, as we can oftentimes do. We are fickle, but God is not. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever, Hebrews tells us. The prophet Malachi says, I am the Lord. I do not change. 
You know, speaking of just kind of camping out on this point of immutability or unchangingness of God as it relates to his faithfulness, you know, many people think that God, the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. Anybody ever kind of thought that or know somebody has thought that? You know, you, you, read, the, you read kind of how the un- Old Testament unfolds and you go, and then you get to the New Testament where Jesus is on the scene. And it's very, it's very often that people will kind of uh, have this kind of like, struggle, internal struggle, like, man, it seems like the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament, or the God of the New Testament is much more palatable and acceptable, but the God of the Old Testament, well, you know, he seems a little harder to like, you know, or some people will will say that they're attracted to Jesus, but not really to God in general. I mean, some people even call themselves red-letter Christians, right? When you open your Bibles and you have the red letters, the words of Jesus, people are referred to as red-letter Christians, meaning we're about the teachings of Jesus, but everything else can kind of come and go as I deem fit. Again, the reason is because oftentimes Jesus appears on the pages as Someone who's a, a God of love, but the God of the Old Testament is impatient and angry and seems eager to judge people. You see, the problem with this kind of thinking is that, well, for one, God and Jesus cannot be divided. God and Jesus, God the Father and Jesus cannot be divided. Either you have the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, or you have nothing. I think, secondly, the God revealed on the pages of the Old Testament, we need to understand that he is the same God on the pages of the New Testament. We say Old Testament, New Testament. It is really basically one testament, one revelation. As one uh, guest speaker in here uh, came and he even encouraged all of us, he says, hey, that thing that says New Testament, Old Testament, just, just rip that page out of your Bible, which is like seems sacrilegious, I know. But it's actually not inspired. It's just basically how it's been structured and formatted. But there is one testament, one revelation, and God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We are, it's one grand redemptive sweep of God saving his creation from the corruption of sin. Thirdly, I think we, people have this idea or have this kind of struggle between the New Testament and the Old Testament because... You know, we, we can't think that way because Jesus even acknowledges in Luke chapter 24 that all scripture is about him and finds its ultimate meaning and fulfillment in him. So even when you read your Old Testament, you have to see how everything even in the Old Testament points to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus even said, it's all about me. From Genesis chapter 3, when, God's, when he, God crushed the heel and he, 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 he proclaimed judgment on both the, the serpent as well as Adam and Eve, everything from that point on was a promise of a redeemer, of a savior who would come. It's all about Jesus and how the father sent his son to be the savior of the world. I think the most predominant reason, however, why people tend to separate the God of the Old Testament versus the God of the New Testament is because people are more attracted to certain attributes of God than they are other attributes. Perhaps some of you, and even here, as we're going through the attributes of God, you, you know, we, we might be going, wow, man, I love that God is love, right? I mean, who's not attracted to a God of love, right? But a God of holiness, purity, righteousness, sinlessness, it's kind of an uncomfortable topic, you know? Or we, we, we love that God is a forgiving God, as we should. But a God of justice? We, I mean, we love grace and we love mercy, but wrath and judgment kind of makes us feel kind of ugh inside. And yet, God is all of those. I think Jared Wilson, he said it well. He said, the God most people want, even in their claims of tolerance and open-mindedness, turns out to be a very narrow-minded God indeed. 
He is simply a projection of themselves. It has been said that in the beginning, God made man in his own image. And man has been trying to return the favor ever since. The kind of God we want to worship is the kind, is the kind who is pretty much exactly like us. The kind of God who shares our thinking, our preferences, and our tastes. And then we encounter the real God from the words of the Bible and from Christian teaching that comes from it. And our mind is expanded. And we must either find new reasons to reject him or we must surrender our objections altogether. The fact is, when we, the reason why we struggle with sometimes our, our perception of God or the, the full acceptance of God is because there are certain things about God that, that make us struggle. And we don't like to struggle because struggle means discomfort, and we don't like discomfort. And yet, what we have to do if we are honest when we approach the scriptures is that we receive everything that God has revealed about Himself. And even if you don't understand it, or even if it's difficult to, to accept at first, we must receive it because if God said it, He meant it, and we in all honesty and integrity, must receive it as such. I think the words of A.W. Tozer, he kind of summarizes it well when he says this, we must remember that all of God's acts are consistent with all of his attributes. No attribute contradicts any other. Every thought that God thinks, every word that God speaks, every act of God must accord with his faithfulness, wisdom, goodness, justice, holiness, love, truth, and all his other attributes. Question is, what does this mean for you and for me? In what ways does God show his faithfulness to you and to me? Again, there's probably a variety of responses to that question but let me just offer three. First of all, God shows his faithfulness to us when we are weak. God shows his faithfulness to you when you are weak. Does anybody feel weak this morning? I'm not talking about gun show weakness. But do you feel weak spiritually? Relationally. Maybe it's not even limited to this morning. Maybe some of you just feel just, I've just been in a season of weakness. You know, as a pastor, sometimes you might have this false perception that we are somehow exempt from normal human um, feelings and interactions and we're kind of above that, and that is simply not true. This last week, I felt very weak. Had a three-day series saga of spiritual assault, spiritual attack, and it was not fun, pretty, or easy. It's interesting how the Lord sometimes calls pastors to live the message before they preach the message. That is also not very fun. But here's the thing. God shows his faithfulness to you when you are weak. I love what Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 12. This is God speaking to him. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with my weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. It's interesting that phrase when Paul says, I am content with my weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions, that phrase, I am content, literally, literally means I will delight in. 
how many of us are in the practice or the habit of delighting in our weaknesses? How many of us are praising the fact that, oh, Lord, thank you for the struggle that I'm experiencing right now. Oh, Lord, thank you that I'm going through this. This is, I love this. Man, please may I have another, right? No, no, most of us are always like, how do I get out of this situation or whatever this circumstance is as quickly as possible? How do we find resolution? Oh, you want me to wait on the Lord? Oh, waiting on the Lord? And he seems to be so slow in his response. And yet Paul gives us kind of this nugget here. He says, I will delight in not just accepting his weaknesses, but rejoicing in them because it is his weakness, in his weakness, that God enabled him to see his power manifested through him. You know, so often, and I'm sure I don't need to be convincing you of this, but so often when we are weak, we all have kind of a default response, right? In our weakness, in our struggle, we, we tend to want to turn to certain things. What are those certain things for you? They're usually sinful. They can be even amoral, but not helpful for you. Some of you can become like, I just need to go on Amazon.com and shop my way out of this pity party. Some of us want to just eat whatever's in the fridge. Some of us will turn to pornography. Some of us will drink our sorrows away. Some of us will gossip our sorrows away. There's nothing like making others feel terrible to make ourselves feel better about ourselves, right? What is it for you? And what if in your weakness, instead of turning to those fleshly responses that have big promises, boast of big benefits, but never come through ever, what if in your weakness you instead ran to God and said, God, I need you right now. God, I can't do this. I'm so weak. What does God promise when you come to him in this way? that his power will be manifested and perfected in your weakness. You see, God wants to meet you in your weakness, brothers and sisters. He wants to change you through your weakness. Because God knows everything, he's not caught off guard or somehow ignorant of what you're currently going through even right now. But it is through this weakness that God has every intention of using it to change you and to transform you. In fact, it is in your weakness that we learn to depend consistently upon God. It is in your weakness that the glory of God is more fully displayed. There are many examples that we can turn to, examples of men and women that have modeled this for us One common or more current example of this is in the life and ministry of Johnny Erickson Tata. Many of you know who maybe that is, right? Johnny Erickson Tata. When she was a teenager, she jumped into a pool, dove, probably in the shallow end, I guess, broke her neck, paralyzed from the neck down for the rest of her life. Depressed post-injury, thinking her life was over. Now what do I have to offer wanted to commit suicide, didn't even have the ability to commit suicide. Dark night of the soul. But through it all, God transformed her and began to help her. And if you know anything about her life and her ministry to this day, she has had a more global impact than millions and millions of other people combined will ever have. That's the power of God manifested through person's weakness. Listen to what she says. You would think after 30 or 40 years it would get easier. 
But every morning I wake up and someone has to put my makeup on, someone has to bathe me, someone has to put clothes on me, and I just want to be discouraged and I want to have a pity party and I want to say, God, why me? Anybody relate? And all the rest. And then I realize that the power of God is perfected in my weakness. And so I say, oh God, if you would just give me grace for today to walk with you, and I do that every single day, and it doesn't even get any easier, and I walk and thank God that there is a heaven that one day I will walk and I will play again, but until that day comes, I'm going to ask him to take my weakness and cause his power to be displayed. Point is, brothers and sisters, God is faithful. He is faithful in your weakness. Don't settle for cheap substitutes. But remember that it is in your weakness that his power is perfected in you and through you. And he will glorify himself because of your faithfulness. There's another reason how God, way that God shows his faithfulness to us, and that is in our fight against temptation and sin. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man, but God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Has anybody ever felt it at all, and maybe in here right now, I'm probably the only one struggling with this. You know, it's interesting that in our struggle, sometimes we think we are the only ones, right? No one can relate to me. I'm all alone because I'm the only one struggling. Look around. Just everybody look around a second. You're looking at fellow strugglers, fellow sufferers. The Bible tells us that anything that you are experiencing in your life there are others who relate to the same struggle in your life, the same sort of temptations. You are not alone. Now, it's important that we do understand the difference between temptation and sin. Again, because that's the, the context in which Paul is speaking of in 1 Corinthians. There's no temptation that is overtaking you. Now, when we are tempted... Temptation means that we are enticed by something that we, that we know to be wrong but have a genuine desire for. That's what a temptation is. If you didn't have a genuine desire for something, it would not be a temptation for you. You'd just be like, whatever. It may be for somebody else but not for you. But a genuine temptation in your life is when you know something to be wrong but you actually, if you're honest with yourself, really want to do that anyways. Each person is tempted, James tells us, when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Those temptations tell you the desires that, that dwell in your heart already. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. Now, we need to understand that being tempted is not a sin in and of itself. You and I are always tempted every single day in our lives, but temptation itself is not a sin. Sin is when we give in to that temptation, when we act upon, when we pursue what we know to be wrong. And we might ask the self, well, what's the big deal? You know, why make, take, take such an issue with sin in our life? Well, there's a, that's a whole other sermon series to really answer that adequately, but let me just say this very briefly. The reason why it is important that we take sin in our lives seriously is because sin will keep you from knowing and experiencing the love that God has for you. Sin always blinds you to the spiritual realities made available to you and for you. Sin will always distort and confuse and cloud one's thinking. In, in our sin, we, we see that sin ultimately distorts our identity, it devalues our worth, and it steals our joy. So sin is kind of a big deal, not because we elevate it on any pedestal whatsoever, but it's a big deal because it is dangerous, and the enemy desires that it would continue to use it to take you out. And we are all vulnerable. 
We are all weak. But then we have this glorious invitation given to us by God himself when he says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, everyone in the world may fail you. Everyone else may abandon you. Everyone else may give up on you and write you off, but God never will because God is always faithful even in your sin. Camp out on that just for a second. Even in your sin, God continues to be faithful. Brothers and sisters, that's really good news Because so often our thinking, our distorted thinking says, in our sin, God must be so infuriated with me right now. He must be so mad at me. He probably wants nothing to do with me because guess what? That's how we relate to one another sometimes. But brothers and sisters, even in your sin, God is faithful. Remember what I preached on a number of months back, but I'll just remind you of it again That Jesus Christ is right now sitting at the right hand of the Father interceding for you. He is advocating for you to God the Father right now. You wonder if he's just twiddling his thumbs in heaven waiting for the Father to send him back. That's not what he's doing. He's actually interceding to the Father for you until he comes. Let that thought and reality sink in. Let that wash over you, that God is not against you. He is for you. And as children of God who have been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, even when we continue to screw it up and to stumble and fall, he is faithful. The steadfast love of the Lord, what? sometimes is available. It never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. But there is a warning to follow. You see, God's faithfulness is also a warning for all of us. Because if you think that your sin doesn't matter and you, and you have no intention of repenting of your sin or you are determined to live life on your terms instead of God's, then please hear me out when I say this, that God's faithfulness is not good news for you. In fact, it's a promise of judgment. You see, at his first coming, Jesus came to save us from our sin. He came as a suffering servant so that you and I would be reconciled to God the Father. But he says, I'm coming back. I'm coming back, Jesus says, and I'm coming back not as the suffering servant, but I'm coming back as king and as Lord, and I will exercise judgment on all wickedness once and for all. All those who belong to Jesus through repentance will be saved to eternal life. All those who have rejected Jesus by their rebellion will be banished to eternal judgment. And so while you and I have every reason to sing hallelujah for God's faithfulness, it is also a sobering warning and call for those of you or anyone who might think that whatever, I can live my life on my terms, however I deem fit, it's all about me, it's my life, how Western that is to think that way, right? It's my life and who's to say what I need to do? God does. And yes, he will give you a period of time in which you can live life the way you deem fit. But you will reap what you sow. And that's not bringing the gauntlet down on you. That is a cry, an invitation. It is a, 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 a plea. Don't live this way. Do not think that your sin is no big deal. Get right with God. He wants to save you because he loves you. Let me say this in closing. How should you and I respond? I'm going to say this just very quickly. 
the way in which you and I need to respond to God's faithfulness in our life is this. First of all, we need to put our past behind us. What that means is sometimes we can go about life and we're still wallowing in our guilt. But let me just say this. When Jesus says, it is finished on the cross and you are his son or his daughter, then that guess what that means? You are innocent. You are free. If God, if God does not condemn you, then who can condemn you? If God be for you, then who can be against you? When Jesus says, it is finished, it's done. So walk in newness of life. Do not let the past haunt you. Paul says, I forget what lies behind and I press on for what lies ahead. Secondly, bring your present problems and pains and failures to Jesus today. Jesus says this, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy with burden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and let me, t- let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. Third and finally, put your hope for the future in the one who will never let you down. Brothers and sisters, I just want to give us a brief moment to do real business with Jesus Christ right now. Before we end in our closing song, perhaps there are some of you in this room that have let, have let the weight of guilt paralyze you instead of walking in freedom. Perhaps the weight of the guilt, but guess what? Jesus says, I've already died for that. It's done. I've already covered that. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Walk in that promise. If God said it, then believe it, receive it, and walk in in newness of life. But for some of us in here, perhaps there is, you're aware of sin. Perhaps the Spirit of God has been tugging on you and you have yet to really surrender all. May I just say to you that you will never be totally free until you have surrendered everything. Everything. 